We are coming into a new year, and as such, uh, it is a good time to stop and consider what it means for us to be given another year, another, another day uh, to live for the Lord. And so uh, the title of today's message is Making the Most of Your Time. Uh, I have made it a, a part of my ministry over many years now, probably 30, 40 years, wherever I've had the opportunity to preach in the context of uh, January, the first week or so of January, to take my role as a, a pastor teacher and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, the work of the ministry, we often uh, are confused by the fact that, you know, as churches, we, we tend to teach the Word of God in a uh, church-centered way. Uh, and, and so we tend to teach on giving, you know, as though uh, giving to the church was the only legitimate uh, generosity. That's not true. You read the Bible, you see we're to be generous to our neighbors. We're to be generous to the widow, to the orphan, and, and to uh, missions and other causes. And, but we tend, I mean, it's a natural thing for the church to be thinking about its own financial needs and to teach that passage as it relates to the church. And in a similar way, we can read that fa- the, the uh, passage in Ephesians where Paul writes that God has given these gifts to the church, uh, ev- uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers uh, to teach the church and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And in a a church-centered way, we can think, well, that means uh, equipping the saints to teach Sunday school classes, equipping the saints to run programs, equipping the saints to uh, help with the property. No, no, we're equipping the saints for the work of their ministry. And their ministry is to love their own wife or husband, raise their own kids, mind their own business, live as an ambassador for Christ in whatever neighborhood they've been placed, be faithful in their relationship to local government and state government and federal government. And to equip the saints for their ministry is to equip them to to live well for the glory of God to be fruitful in all those relationships. And one of those relationships is the local church, a very important one, but it's just one of the relationships in which we have a ministry. And so today, as I open this passage in Ephesians chapter five and verses 15 through 17, we're going to be looking at what it means to make the most of your time. And I wanna try to teach this in a way that is not simply church-centered, but is centered upon you fulfilling the calling that you have received in Christ so that you are able to be the believer, the Christian that God has saved you to be. And so as we enter two thousand and twenty four, I believe it will be helpful to reconsider how best to invest our time in this new year. And so we come to this important passage in God's Word from the Apostle Paul. And I'd like you to stand, if you would, and read uh, along with me as we see what Paul has to say 
In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 17, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the riches of your word, and we thank you for this, this gold nugget that we are now observing here in Ephesians chapter 5. Lord, help us to make good use of this passage and to come away from this morning equipped for the ministry of making the most of our time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. First of all, I'd like to take a look at what, it is, what does Paul mean when he says to be wise? What does it mean to be wise? As we see, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. It's interesting that the first reference to wisdom in the Bible is it has to do with God filling artists and craftspeople with the spirit of wisdom. I think that's it. First appearances are important in the Bible. They set a tone and they, they reveal something important. And in this case, I believe what is revealed, as we see in his, his, uh, Exodus chapter 28 and verse 3, so you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as a priest. That's the first appearance of the word wisdom in the Bible. So what do we get from that? It's Exodus chapter 31, again in verse three. And I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works. So, what do we get from this? I believe that wisdom is a way of seeing things, and specifically in seeing how things relate to one another. If you're going to be an artist, if you're going to create artistic works, you have to be able to see the different elements of your particular project and how they relate the framing of the photograph, if you will, the, the balance in the sculpture, uh, the way in which the colors interact with one another. Wisdom is basically the ability to see how things relate to one another. And in a much larger and more general sense, how those things relate to one another in God's purposes. Because with that kind of insight and understanding, you will be able to position yourself properly to everything else that's going on, okay? So, true wisdom always comes from God. We read in Proverbs 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So many of the problems that we face in life are resolved when you realize God is in the room. <laughs> Think of all the things you wouldn't do if your dad was standing there. You know, 
you're going to behave a little bit better because dad is watching. And we are given this as a motivator all through the scriptures. God is watching. God is at hand. God is is observing. You're not alone. You are never alone. And so live your life in the presence of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is to respect and to fear that Heavenly Father who is there with you all the time. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. To be able to see and how God is working in the various ways he's working in your life, in the lives of those around you, in the lives of others beyond, that is true understanding. To realize this, as John Piper puts it, God is accomplishing a thousand things in every single thing he does. It's not just about you. It's about people who love you. It's about people who are watching you. People who are seeing how you respond. God is working not just in your life and in your heart. He's working in the hearts of those around you. So play your part well. Be an an inspiring example to those who are observing. There is a worldly wisdom that we need to be aware of. It's a wisdom that is merely a cleverness in doing evil. Be like the used car salesman who knows how to push your buttons and manipulate you into buying something more expensive than you can afford. That's a worldly kind of wisdom. He's really good at that. But it's not pleasing to God. James chapter 3 and verse 15 says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and even demonic. So we need to be aware. Don't, don't confuse cleverness in this world's uh, games and, 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 and activities as being wisdom. True wisdom comes from God and it abounds in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so we see in James chapter 3 and verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's true wisdom. The wisdom that comes from from above, from God, is going to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in many, many different ways. And so true wisdom, if we can kind of sum up this point, is the ability to see how one thing relates to another in the amazing work of art displayed in God's glorious purposes. You've got a place on the canvas, okay? You have a part to play as God's work of art is being completed throughout all of time and eternity. God is accomplishing his purpose. And as our creator, he is also concerned with things like beauty and balance. We are part of that work of art. So, making the most of your time. The word time in this passage is the word kairos. Kairos can be translated and actually is translated in many versions of scripture as opportunity or opportunity time. Ephesians 5:15. therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. And that is the word kairos, 
because the days are evil. Making the most of your opportunity because the days are evil. So what is the difference between chronos and kairos? The arrow of chronological time moves from the past through the present and into the future. And so chronological time is simply the, the pacing off of moments, one moment at a time, one moment of the present at a time. And we are living in this incredibly thin red line that we call the present. And in that kairos moment of time, we get to make a choice. So what is the choice? The choice is how we will either spend, squander, or invest the present that we've been given. Maybe the reason it's called the present is because it's a gift. I'm not the only one that's noticed that. It is a gift. You have a moment right now to make a choice. It's your opportunity to be wise. You see how this is all coming together? God has given us time with which to be wise. And we need to be careful because everyone in this world now loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not just God who loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, the carnival barker has a wonderful plan for your life. He wants you to come over there and start throwing these balls and trying to win these, these uh, stuffed animals. And when you do that, when you allow yourself, think of the world as a huge carnival. And all around you are booths with different games that you can play. Over here we've got sex, over here we've got money, over here we've got fame, over here we've got power. All these different barkers are out there saying, come on over here, try this out. Come on, show your, show your girlfriend how good you are. You know, put, put your money on the table, pick up these balls and start throwing them. See if you can win a Cupid doll. That's, that's dating me, isn't it? <laughs> But the point is the world is like that. Everybody sees you coming. And they think, wow, here's an opportunity for get, to get whatever money is in their pocket into my pocket. And so Paul is saying you've got to be wise because the days are evil. Everybody's after you. Everybody wants not just your time, but also your money. They want your attention. They want to buy your eyeballs and then sell them to other people on the internet. Everybody loves you, and they have a wonderful plan for your life. So are you going to let others own you, or are you going to allow the Lord to own you? For him to be the one who governs the way you invest your time. So according to Paul, and in God's word in Ephesians, the best investment we can make with our kairos, our opportunity time, is to do the will of the Lord. That's the best use of your time. And so we see, so do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. Foolishness is not ignorance. You can have intellectual fools Foolishness is the inability to see how one thing relates to another 
in God's purposes. And when you are being foolish, uh, you will continually do the same thing and get the same bad results and somehow think you're going to be able to get a better result by just doing it a little more and doing it a little harder. You're just not clear on the concept. You're not understanding how what you just ate made you sick, so don't eat it again. That's why we read in the Proverbs that a fool is like a dog, and I won't finish the rest, because it's kind of gross. But the dog continues to get sick because it keeps repeatedly eating the same thing, and it makes it sick. Don't be foolish. Instead, be wise. And in being wise, you're going to understand how you fit into God's purposes. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 22, we read that there are many in this world who are professing to be wise, and in doing so, they have become fools. And they begin distorting everything that God has created, denying the reality that God has established, defying the order in which God has, has placed men and women and children and, and possessions and all the rest. And we find ourselves in a world that is just totally uh, a mess. We're going into a new year in which there are wars and rumors of wars all over the world. It could be very discouraging. But we don't need to be discouraged because God is on his throne. As we read in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 40, God is on his throne. His love for us never changes. He is there to carry us through. He's there to go through 2024 with us. It may not be easy, but it will be good because God is good, and he is walking with you through this particular period in history. So I want you to have hope, to have encouragement. God is not going to forsake you. He's going to carry you through whatever comes. So, what is the will of the Lord? Well, Paul gives us a hint. It's not getting drunk with wine. He says, do not be drunk with wine which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the word dissipation is not one we hear a lot today, but it simply means to be wasting something. Uh, to, uh, to, to live in a dissipating life is to waste your time in, in uh, drugs and gambling and you know, running around and partying and all these kind of things that may be fun and pleasurable for the moment, but they always end badly. And Paul is saying, don't get drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Now, we need, to, we need to be honest here, because so many times, because of the ways in which the, the ministry, the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has been misunderstood and misused in different denominational contexts, we tend to shy away from passages that are telling us we need to get up close and personal with the Holy Spirit. Now, don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not gonna make you fall on the ground and bark like a dog and laugh. Okay? Can we just get that over with? He's, that's not the Holy Spirit, okay? That's nowhere in scripture. You don't need to be afraid if you yield to the Holy Spirit that you're gonna do something like that. Now, being filled with the Spirit 
however, is God's alternative to getting drunk. Now, what are the implications of that? That means if, if a glass of wine makes you, as the Bible actually says, that God has given us wine to make our hearts glad, well, then we should assume that being filled with the Holy Spirit will make our hearts glad. And when our hearts are glad, just like somebody who's feeling the effects of, of uh, alcohol, maybe in a nice, uh, friendly bar where they see all their, their, their uh, comrades, they're going to maybe start singing. <laughs> so the Holy Spirit is an alternative to getting drunk. And in a sense, the church service is like a spiritual bar. And you step up to the bar and you, have, you get filled with the Spirit again and you start singing. Look at it. That's what it says. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is God's alternative to getting drunk with wine. Isn't that wonderful? The joy of the Lord is your strength, and the Holy Spirit will impart to you joy and peace, a peace that passes understanding, a peace that makes no sense at all in light of what you're going through. And yet there it is. The Holy Spirit is there to give you peace and joy. And it is a natural response to that to begin singing and making melody. And, and it's a true from the heart melody that you're singing. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some struggle with this idea of giving thanks always for all things because when you're going through something that's really hard, it may be a medical situation that is scary, it, it may be a financial crisis that there just seems to be no way out of it, and you end up actually going bankrupt, you know, being in debt. You look at that and say, well, how can I give thanks for that? Well, I know that it's not easy to do, but what is needed is for us to have God's perspective on the situation. And, and I share with you this because I know that it's going to happen, and I want you all to be ready for this. Every one of us needs to be needed. Okay? And the way that God works that out, where you get to respond to somebody else's need, is for somebody to need you. Somebody's going to have a crisis. Somebody needs you to show up in practical ways. Meals need to be prepared. Child, children need to be taken care of. Uh, money needs to be given away. And we think, well, I'd be happy to do that. I'm happy to be needed. But are you willing to be needful? Are you willing to be the person that we show up for? Now, this is hard, especially for men, because we like to think we can take care of it. We can do it ourselves. No, the church needs to be needed, and now it's your turn to be needful and to give us the opportunity to act like a church, to respond like a church, like a family, like the body of Christ in response to one who is going through a hard time. So I know it's hard to be thankful always for all things, 
But if you can get God's perspective, you realize that he is wisely putting each of us through different circumstances and bringing them through, bringing us through and growing us up, not just growing up the one who's going through the hard time, but also growing up those who are there to assist you during that hard time. And so I believe that Paul means exactly what he says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're doing this as Christians. Our Heavenly Father is in control. And so therefore we can joyfully submit to one another in the fear of God. God is in the room. We are going to relate to one another in ways that please Him, not please ourselves. And in doing so, we find a joy and a contentment in being used by God to help others. This word submitting is is an uncomfortable word, especially for Americans. We like to think of ourselves as not submitting to anyone. And yet the truth is we submit all the time to all kinds of things. We submit to the stoplight. You know, we submit to the stop sign. You know, we submit to the IRS. You know, we submit in all kinds of ways. And so we're to submit to one another. That means that we're to let others' interests and needs be ahead of our own, to be a, a higher priority than our own. And in doing so, we set the stage for God to prosper us in ways that allow us to continue to be useful to him like the widow who gave her last little bit of food uh, to Elijah before she thought she was going to die. And he says, well, make me a a little cake first. And so she does, and she thinks this is it. Might as well give it to him. And then, lo and behold, the little jar of oil and the grain never dries up. It just continues to reproduce. It's like a miracle of, you know, cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. And God is just, you know, reproducing everything that's needed uh, and filling that jar over and over again. And, And she would never have known that if she had not put others ahead of herself. I want you to think about this, that this year, when you are facing a hard situation, put others ahead of yourself. Because generosity in those moments is multiplied. As Paul writes uh, to, I believe it's the Philippians, that that when they gave, even out of their need, in their poverty, their generosity abounded. And so it was like they hit the jackpot because the giving was given in a moment of need for themselves, but they put others ahead of themselves and it set the stage for God to move in in a often supernatural provision. And so there we see submitting to one another in the fear of God. And so summing up again, generally speaking, okay, this is a kind of a one-size-fits-all statement. Generally speaking, it is God's will for all of us that we rejoice in the Holy Spirit being thankful for whatever our situation may be, and being enthusiastic about showing our love for Jesus by the way we love one another on his behalf, knowing all along that God the Father is watching. 
I believe that when we accept these truths and embrace them, it helps us to invest our time wisely. But what else is the will of the Lord? You know, this is a big topic. Well, in the book of Ephesians, after having said this, Paul launches into a whole series of relationships that he wants to define in very basic terms. This is what you should be doing. And it depends upon your current position in life. And so we find Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, I'm not going to take the time to unpack each of these, but I will just comment that the emphasis here is on your own husband. Evidently, there is always a tendency for wives to develop a, a, a respect and an admiration for other men in the church who seem to be more spiritual than their own husband. And so there's a tendency to let that guy's uh, comments have more weight in her life than her own husband's uh, opinions about things. And, and this is a situation in which wives, by your submitting to your own husband, going to him with your questions rather than to somebody else, and saying, you know, things like, uh, honey, are we pre-millennial or post-millennial? And he's going to look at you like a deer caught in the headlights, you know, and he's going to say, well, I'll get back to you on that. And so he's going to go get his uh, big heavy-duty uh, MacArthur study Bible or whatever he's got, and he's going to flip through there, and he's going to find some opinions there, and he's going to come to the elders of the church maybe and, and say, hey, my wife just asked me this question, and I'm not sure what to say. And could you have any resources that might help me uh, come to an informed opinion about this question? Well, sure, here, we, here, we give you a couple of things here. And uh, get Grudem's, uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. It covers it really well. And uh, pretty soon this guy's showing up with his wife and saying, honey, I have made my decision. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. But I'll just say that we are dealing here with a wife who by obeying God actually helps her husband step into the role that he's supposed to have and helps him to find his voice. He may ultimately be up here at the open mic sharing insights from God's word. He may go on to become a deacon or an elder in the church, all because he had a wife who submitted to her own husband rather than uh, expecting to get everything she needed from other, other men in the church. God is good. And he's wise. Husbands, love your wives. Love them. Your wife is worthy of love. She needs your love. She needs your love more than she needs your respect. And we like to think, well, no, that song says R-E-S-B-C-T. Don't know what it means to me. Well, yeah, she enjoys respect, but she needs love. Husbands enjoy love, but they need respect. Okay? And so in this understanding, husbands love your wives, you're to be thinking about how can I make her heart light up with joy? What can I say or do that will give her a, a sense that she is loved? Now, you know, I, I have a, a wonderful wife. And Bonnie and I are, very fortunately, we are a good match for one another. I can't walk by her without touching her shoulder or her back or just patting her 
And she receives that as a, like a, a little love bomb, you know, just you're loved. I notice you. I appreciate you. And she's the same way with me. And we just kind of walk around the house touching one another all the time and saying, I love you. We say, I love you a lot. And it never gets old. We, we need that. And she says things to me sometimes that, like, you know, I'm so proud of you. I respect you. You know, I appreciate how, what you do. And it builds me up in the Lord. So don't, don't think that these two simple statements are something that's too basic that for you to take, pay attention to. These are the keys to success in these relationships. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And then we go on to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Parents are more likely to truly love their children than anyone else in the world. And it is a, a, a grievous error to think that any institution out there can do a better job of loving your children and of teaching your children than you can. Now you can build a team, you can have other people involved, but don't make the mistake of thinking you can delegate this. You can't. You can only incorporate it to, and you can have other people helping you, let's put it that way. You can have others help you, but you cannot give this job away. God's word says children obey your parents and parents have to stay engaged with their children. Fathers, train up your children in the way of the Lord. Bond servants, employees, be obedient to your masters. And not just with eye service when they're watching, but all the time, even when they're not watching. In Ephesians 6, 9, and you masters, you employers, uh, give up the threatening. You know, be kind to your employees. Uh, be generous. You get a sense that Paul wants both the employer and the employee to work together as a team and not as adversaries. Now, all of these exhortations require an investment of our time. And so when you're wanting to know, okay, well, what do I do with my time? How, how do I uh, do the will of the Lord? Well, you'll find it here in these passages, right in the very same book of Ephesians. So investing our opportunity time, our kairos, in fulfilling the obligations of our current position in life is a key aspect of making the most of your time, not squandering it, not wasting it. So, how does this work in practice? You know, the answer to the question of how can I make this work in practice is actually found in the most important commandment uh, in the scriptures. Jesus is the one who gives us the answer. When asked the question, what is the most important commandment? Jesus responds, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now why do we find uh, God uh, responding with two answers here? What's the most important commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I believe it comes down to the fact that God doesn't need anything. Okay, think about it. What do you have that God needs? Nothing. 
But God is like those, uh, those obituary notices you see a lot of times where it'll say, in lieu of flowers, please give to this particular favorite charity. Okay? And so when a person has passed away, they don't want just a bunch more flowers at their funeral. They want that money to be invested in something more lasting. And so there's a, a cause that they're involved in, and they'd like you to donate that money that would have gone to flowers to go to this charity. Well, in a very real sense, God is saying to us, listen, I know you love me, and I really appreciate it, but I don't need anything. <laughs> so here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to make a donation to my favorite charity. And guess what? God's favorite charity is your neighbor. And so God is saying, you go and do something for them, and I'll receive it as though you did it for me. Whatsoever you've done unto the least of these my brethren, you did it for me. And so God is giving us these two commandments in order for the love that we have for him to not just be this kind of fruitless throwing money in the air and hoping God catches it, but rather turning to our neighbor and saying, how can I help you? And I'm going to help you in Jesus' name. I'm going to help you on his behalf. And, and whatever gratitude you may have for this act of kindness, I would like you to send a note to God and thank him. Because he's the one that really is providing so that I can do this. So God needs nothing, and so he asks us to show our love for him by loving our neighbor on his behalf. And to do so as if our neighbor was in fact ourself. Now think about that. There's a passage, what we often call the golden rule, do unto others what you would have others do unto you. And that's great. And, uh, but there's a, a, an element there that needs to be understood. We need to do for others what we would want others to do for us if we were in the same situation, but knowing what we know. So if you're dealing with somebody who's addicted to drugs, would you want them to just give you more money to go and spend on drugs? Probably not. But what you would want them to do is to take you and buy you lunch and sit down and talk to you for a while and actually be a friend. And then to ask if you are aware of different agencies that are already set up, many of them Christian agencies, ready to help you get off the drugs and get on your feet and get into housing and get into a job and get into all these things. There's a whole chain of events that could take place if instead of doing what they want you to do, you do for them what you would want them to do if you were in their situation, knowing what you know about the whole cycle of drug abuse. You see how that works. Love them the way you would want to be loved, knowing what you know about these social problems. When we take that approach, the world becomes our playground. We've got a Heavenly Father who's providing us with all that we need, all that pertains to life and godliness, we're receiving that from God constantly. And then he's saying, now I want you to go and show your love for me by the way you love your neighbor. The way you love, and your neighbor includes everybody who's not you. Okay, so, and you love them as though they were you. And that's a pretty high standard. Because you tend to clothe yourself and feed yourself and house yourself pretty consistently. You can get involved in helping those things happen for the people around you. Now, there is a limit. And you know what that limit is? It's geographical. Your neighbor 
is the person you see as you come and go each day. You know, the, uh, the Good Samaritan was not looking for somebody to help. He was on his way to Jericho to do business. But on his way, he came across a man who had been beaten and left for dead. And the Samaritan stopped. He let his life be interrupted by the need of another. And he got involved very generously in taking care of that particular man. Now that Samaritan cannot help everybody around the world, but he can help that neighbor he comes across in his normal routines in a time of need. I think it is a, a diabolical trap for us to be more concerned about somebody who's struggling on the other side of the world and then to walk right past our neighbor and not respond to their need when we become aware of it. We know more today about what's going on on the other side of the world than we do what's going on on the other side of the wall in our apartment complex. So we gotta get out of our apartments and go and meet our neighbors and talk to them and get to that place where they open up and share with us what's going on in their lives. Don't be afraid that you're gonna get tapped out by this attitude. Because when you begin to act in this generous way toward your neighbor, God notices, and I've said it before, God has a kingdom interest in providing for those who are living generously toward those around them. This is not a church-centered message. This is a ministry in the kingdom of God message. And you've got lots of opportunities out there to be kind and to be generous, and that's what this is about, all about. Now, also, we are to express this love for God and for our neighbor with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. The same energy you would put into loving God, put that love, that energy into loving your neighbor as yourself. And in doing so, you will be a purpose, a purpose a person of purpose. That was kind of hard to get out. You will be a person of purpose. So what do these four parts of our being have to do with one another? Well, our heart believes by faith that our God is there and he is there to be loved. Now I want to give a little twist to this. Notice I put in our God. The same thing is going to be true if your God is money. Your heart. Out of the abundance of your heart, these things are going to flow. So the heart believes by faith that whatever it is that you've got in the place of God is there and is worthy to be served. It's intended to be the true and living God, but it's often not. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and everybody's got a God that they believe is important in their heart. Our soul yearns. That's its function. It's a wanter. It yearns to actually love our God, whoever that God may be. Our mind plans on how to love our God, whoever that God may be. And our strength acts to love our God, whoever that God may be. But these four, this four-part sequence 
activates every time we love whatever or whoever holds the place of God in our lives. When anything actually gets done, it's, become, it's because heart, soul, mind, and strength have lined up with purpose, goals, plans, and actions. Whether it's moving to a new home, whether it's buying a new car, whether it's pursuing a cause in politics or, or in uh, charity, whatever it is that you believe is worth doing, it starts in your heart, it moves to your soul, it moves to your mind, and from there it shows up in your actions. So everything we ever accomplish in this world is energized to some degree by this same four-part sequence within ourselves. And so in a lot of ways, we are like an integrated circuit. Now, it's always dangerous to use an analogy that's more complicated uh, than the thing you're trying to explain. But I'm going to assume that we're all adept enough at the fundamentals of electronics to know that there is such a thing as a circuit board. Okay? Are we all familiar with the idea of a circuit board? Okay. Well, this is a picture of a circuit board. And a circuit board has got all of these little, uh, little things um, soldered onto it uh, that are called processors. And a process, different kinds of processes do different things because there are different processes to be done. And so let's assume that you are an integrated circuit board and you've got a processor here called the heart and another processor called the soul and another processor called the mind and another processor called strength. And so the signal that goes into the circuit board <clears throat> is an electrical circuit, sir. <clears throat> an electrical impulse. We're going to call that the love of our God. <coughs> Excuse me. And so the love of God goes in and it starts in the heart. And then it moves to the soul, then it moves to the mind, then it goes to the strength. And it comes out the other end of the circuit board with a great amount of power to do what was intended when it went in. These four parts of our being each contribute, each in its own way, to how we love God by loving one another. And so loving God with our heart means having a clear sense of purpose by faith. Loving God with our soul means loving him with clearly set passionate goals because the soul is the seat of our will and our emotions and it can get really, really energized. And the word passionate actually means something you're willing to suffer for, something you're willing to press through difficulty for. That's why we call it the passion of the Christ. You know, it is Jesus' determination to lay his life down to pay for our sins. He is passionate about accomplishing that. And we should be passionate about whatever we're doing because we're going to have to deal with opposition and you know, obstacles and so we have to be passionate. In fact, I'll go so far as to say the only goals that ever get accomplished are passionate goals. Everything else tends to fall by the wayside. When the goal is truly passionate, 
the mind kicks in and begins to plan, begins to research, begins to come up with a, a, a sense of well, what are we going to do? How are we going to get this done? And that plan of action then shows up over here in our strength where we are able to love God with our actions, actually doing what we believe is important. If, if you say you believe something is important, but it doesn't show up in your actions, then we have a gap somewhere in your circuit board. There's a place where the signal doesn't get through. And you may have a wonderful sense of purpose, but if you don't set any goals, uh, nothing's gonna happen. You may set some wonderful goals, but if you never make any plans, nothing's gonna happen. And you may have some wonderful plans all mapped out, but if you never take action, nothing's gonna happen. And that's why it's important that you have strong linkage between your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength so that you have a clear sense of purpose in your life. You have passionate goals. You're making very well-informed plans and then you're taking forceful, disciplined action. And when you live like that, then you will be among the very few that actually get things done. You know, there's only about 2% in any population that actually are the, the doers, the ones who actually get things done. And I believe the reason is because there is this gap somewhere in their being in which the signal is just not getting through. Now, what I've just taught you can be used whether you are a Christian or not. If you're listening to this on the web, you know, you can take this and go out and become a better businessman with these principles. You can become a better homemaker with these principles. You can be a much more productive and effective salesperson or scientist or doctor or lawyer or whatever you want. But the real purpose of this instruction is for you to become a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. For you to be somebody who, do, who truly does love God and is willing to show that love for God by the way you love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing so, you will be shining as lights in the midst of the darkness of this self-centered and selfish world. My prayer is that you will take these principles and run with them. And that God will bless you as you make uh, these steps of faith in a direction of making the most of your time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We ask that you would use these principles to build us up as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ that we would live our lives in such a way as to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father who has adopted us with such grace and love into the family of God. Lord, may we be serious about fulfilling what is pleasing to our Father without fear of condemnation. Lord, we know that you love us and that you will continue to complete in us what you have started. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name.
Amen.